Today on Day 2 Cloud, you're getting a double shot of nerdery. First up, Ned and I are going to answer some of your questions about AWS networking, and then sponsor HashiCorp joins Ned for a discussion of Terraform Cloud, which is not Terraform for the cloud, but Terraform in the cloud. Ooh, ah. Ooh. I am Ethan Banks, and Ned is Ned Bellavance. Find us on Twitter at ECBanks and at Ned1313. Follow the show on Twitter at Day2CloudShow. Ned, hi. Uh, and folks should know that you've recently published a course on AWS networking up at Pluralsight. What, what's the name of that course, man, and what are you covering? I, I want everyone to be able to find it easily <laughs> and recklessly just fling money at you. Oh, and uh, that sounds painful, but um, the course <laughs> what if it itself— was bills instead of coins? Is that Okay. <laughs> That's slightly better. Uh, yeah, well, at least I'd know I'd be getting more. Uh, so the course is Advanced Networking in AWS. It is very simply named. It is part of a learning path that Pluralsight has set up for those that are looking to achieve the Solutions Architect Professional Level AWS certification, which I hold and I assume other people are looking to attain, especially now that we're all homebound. Maybe it's time to start bulking up for that exam. Well, that seems hopeful because if people are like you, Ned, they've also got kids at home and they're doing like homeschooling now and, you know, the only playdates they have are with mom and dad. And so, you know, I don't know how much time people really do have for study extra, but there's a little bit of that, I guess. Yeah, I guess it depends on your living situation. Absolutely. But, you know, if you do have the extra time, probably not a bad certification to look into, especially if you already have your SA associate level cert. Pros the next one up, and I mean, it's the highest level cert they have. Right. Well, Ned, um, we tweeted to uh, all the nice people in the audience uh, looking for AWS networking topics that uh, people wanted us to talk about. And we do not have enough time to answer everything that came in because there was a bunch of stuff that <laughs> came in. Uh, and so we're already going to do a, a part two to this. But but for part one today, we're going to focus on AWS networking performance. And this comes as a, um, as a result of a tweet from Dale. And Dale says, I think it would be fun to talk about performance, bits per second, packets per second, instant sizing, offloads, etc. How much is within your control versus just what the platform is capable of and what's exposed. Okay, Dale, this, this show's for you uh, primarily. We're also going to do a lightning round with a few of your other questions, but we're going to focus on a Dale and performance. Now, okay, so, so Ned... To set this up, I was talking to you about this. Hey, let's talk about performance. You said yes, and then you sent me this PDF from Amazon, the AWS Performance Efficiency Pillar PDF. Mm -hmm. And that drove a lot of what we decided to talk about in this show. Can you tell people what that document is? Sure. AWS has a thing that they call the Well-Architected Framework, or WAF. And it is a set of five pillars, uh, one of which is performance efficiency. And it lays out their vision for how you would do something in a well-architected way in the cloud. And it's generally very specific to AWS, though a lot of the principles, if you get beyond the AWS marketing, are actually applicable to any cloud and in some cases your on-premises environment. What's interesting about the performance pillar is it's not just performance, it's performance efficiency. So it does have this balance in its mind of, I need to get the optimal performance for my application, but understanding that's a trade-off. And that might be a trade-off for additional costs or potentially lessened security. We know when you add security to an application, sometimes that slows it down, especially if to process something like SSL. So everything that you do in the performance arena is going to have an impact on other things. And you want to be as efficient as possible in your design to design towards performance, but still striking that balance between other considerations within your design. Yeah. And as you sent me that PDF, the vast majority of which I read prepping for this show, uh, I, I, I hit on all of those things. This wasn't just about, oh, this service performs this quickly and you get this much bandwidth if you use this. It was. <laughs> I think this is really important if you're a traditional network engineer. AWS networking is not merely plumbing IP addresses and then assigning fast speeds via some magic checkbox. You're getting an understanding first of how AWS hosts an application. You need to get that. And then second, you need to understand how AWS networking-related services should be used with those applications so that they perform as 
required. So again, it's not just performance, but it's also, as you were saying, Ned, and, and as the title of that PDF says, uh, efficiency. Uh, so mm-hmm. that means this AWS networking conversation we're going to have today, it's not just bits per second. It's also about systems design. And so I think that was important context for us to establish, Ned, before we start talking about performance as, as Dale uh, tweeted at us. Right. And I think another important thing to drive home is if you are an enterprise architect today or a systems administrator and you have designed for performance in your data center before, you're not starting from scratch when it comes to designing for AWS. A lot of the same principles, like understanding what your application actually needs from a memory, CPU, and storage perspective is still really relevant when you move it to AWS. What changes is the way in which you're going to solve those needs. So the needs are still there. You need to understand how your application works and how to monitor it properly. But the solution for it is going to be a little bit different than what you might have done on-premises. For instance, you know, on-premises, you probably had three or four different machine types at the maximum. You know, you could go request a new virtual machine from your VMware group or your VI admins, and they'd be able to provision you a virtual machine. And you could say, I need this in the high performance cluster. And, you know, who knows what that would actually mean. I mean, maybe you had a medium and a low and a development. You had those options available to you, but you didn't know exactly what they meant. And your selection was limited. Now, the only limitation is how much money you want to spend. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to think about, okay, what are all the different compute options that I have for my application and which one's the most beneficial and cost-effective for what my application needs? I, I love what you were saying at the top of that section, uh, Ned, regarding you still have all the same needs you used to have, resiliency, redundancy, performance, and so on, but how you deliver them in the AWS context might be different than Mm -hmm. what you're used to. A different set of products, a different set of terms, ultimately delivering the same thing our applications have always needed as infrastructure architects and engineers. If you'll allow me to make an analogy, (laughs) your data center is sort of like shopping at the general store. You're going to have like two kinds of jam, maybe one type of peanut butter, two types of bread, like your selection is limited. It's not bad. These are quality ingredients. You can make a great sandwich out of it. But then you go to the, I don't know, the Walmart or the Costco or or name your favorite grocery chain. And you go in there and you look and there is a whole aisle dedicated to just peanut butter and jelly and a whole other aisle just for bread. And you're like, ah, how do I even start to make a decision? And that's Hmm. sort of the analogy of going from your data center where your selection is limited. It's not bad, but it's limited to now what you have available in AWS, which is an embarrassment of riches. How do you select what works? (laughs) Oh, boy. And in that context, we got a lot of AWS things, features, uh, products, embarrassment of riches that we're going to be talking through. So if you're listening in the car on your way to work, well... I don't know when you'd be listening to that since we're still in Corona, but we're all sheltering in place, Ned. But uh, yes, we are. You know, this is an opportunity to maybe take some notes if you can uh, do that uh, of things that sound interesting to you that might you might want to make as part of your AWS architecture. So, so let's jump into some things related to uh, to, to network performance within AWS, Ned. Um, I ha- just picked out a lot of things from that PDF referred to. We refer to the AWS performance efficiency pillar. Um, one of those is a uh, EC2 place groups? Sure. The idea behind EC2 placement groups is, so for those who are not super familiar with AWS, EC2 is their virtual machines. They don't call them virtual machines. They call them instances because AWS makes up their own nomenclature. That's fine. The EC2 instances are running on a hypervisor and the hypervisors are located in availability zones. And then availability zones make up a region. That's sort of the hierarchy, right? You can put two EC2 instances in the same availability zone, which means they're in the same general data center. But that doesn't mean they're in the same row or rack. When you put them in a placement group together, now those instances are running in the same rack, which means their network interconnection is you know, less than one hop away almost. It's, it's probably one hitting one switch at the top of the rack and coming right back down to that machine if they're not on the same machine itself. 
Yeah. So rather than on the presumption there's like a leaf spine architecture with an AWS data center, you could be hopping from one leaf to a spine and then back out to another leaf or, or even more deep than that, just depending. We're saying here that, that if you put two EC2 workloads in the same placement group, they are talking effectively directly to one another. Exactly. So if you want to maximize throughput and minimize latency between two instances, say you're trying to build a high high performance compute cluster, or you have some other similar application, if you want to maximize that performance, you have to put them in a placement group. And you kind of have to do that when you create them, because that's how AWS figures out where to place those EC2 instances. You can't take two existing instances and be like, oh, now be in a placement group. I think if you shut both of them down, you can, but when they're initially if they're both currently running and not in a placement group together, AWS is not going to, you know, v-motion it across the data data center for you. I think the document you read says something about getting up to 20 gigabit per second speed. It, it does. It specifies specifically low latency, 20 gigabits per second, low jitter. Yeah. Yes. You're now getting more than that. I think the highest throughput on any EC2 instance is 100 gig now, and that is achievable through placement groups. And I'm sure that will go up between when I'm saying that and when, you know, you are listening to this. Nothing's free. So how much do I pay extra for an EC2 placement group? The placement group is not actually extra. It's not something you have to pay more for. What you are sacrificing is availability. What you've oh, now because done. I'm not spreading my workloads out across um, uh, multiple AZs or whatever. I'm right. sticking them together it means they're now in the same failure domain. Uh, even closer of a failure domain. Before, they may have been in the same data center, but not in the same rack. Now your instances are definitely in the same rack. If something happens to that rack or that server, your application goes down. So you have to be able to design around that level of availability. You also have to select an instance that supports the extra network speed you're looking for. So it has to have what is called the elastic network adapter, the Amazon elastic network adapter. It needs to have that to achieve the higher speeds. And if you want the really, really fast speeds, you're paying more for that instance. So the placement group itself isn't an additional charge. It's the size instance that you need to drive that amount of network traffic that you're paying more for. I was right. Nothing is free. Yeah. Okay. This is AWS no. we're talking about, after all. <laughs> but I mean, but your but but your point is taken. Yeah. The the the, the big thing is just the design uh, trade off there. Now, sure. uh, now, so let's change gears in performance and go from talking within an AWS data center very closely to by using a placement group. So you're actually putting workloads within a rack and flip it around. What if we want to talk very quickly to our cloud instance from a remote site? Well, we could use AWS Direct Connect. Let's introduce the, the folks to that, Ned. Sure. So if you want to initially connect through a VPN type service, you can do that. You can set up a site-to-site VPN to AWS using their VPN gateway or virtual private gateway, they call it. And that's just a simple VPN between your firewall and their gateway. But you don't have a guaranteed speed. You don't have guaranteed latency. It's not a private circuit. So maybe you want to step that up and get faster communication. AWS Direct Connect is the thing that'll do that for you. Basically, it's a cross-connect into AWS's environment at some sort of colo. You can bring your own circuit into that colo, and you literally have your router, and then there's AWS's router, and they connect them. Or you can basically lease some ports from your ISP because they already have gear in the same data center. Or you can buy a fractional port, so it's not a full dedicated port to you. But that's another option through ISPs. And all these give you some level of guaranteed bandwidth and controlled latency for your environment. So you have a more consistent networking experience. So you can really push the bounds of networking using site-to-site VPNs or some other. uh, You can cook your own VPN, basically, by putting some sort of network virtual appliance in AWS you are at the whims of the internet now. So maybe that doesn't work for you. Uh, Direct Connect would be the way to improve that performance. 
Yeah, and just following up on the you know the, the the patching it through a colo. I know Equinix is big here. They're they're one of the main players for this. Um, mm-hmm. I've also heard of in addition to like talking about ISPs, I, I would roll in uh, private MPLS character uh, carriers can sometimes provide this for you, where they'll give you a connection in your MPLS cloud into AWS, effectively the same service, but on your private MPLS cloud. That can't be the mm-hmm. cheapest way to go, I wouldn't think, but I, I know it's out there as an option from some carriers. Yes. Uh, the other thing I will say about AWS Direct Connect is you have to be aware of the high availability aspect of it. When you get one circuit, you have one circuit. It's one connection. If something happens to your router or to their router, you don't have that connection anymore. So you need to bear that in mind when you're designing your high availability. You could just set up a site-to-site VPN as your backup link. Or if you love burning money, and all and some of us do, You can add another direct connect circuit that goes through a different data center to give you that high availability in case something happens to the existing circuit. And then it's fun with routing. Hooray. (laughs) So AWS direct connect circuits, Ned, what what are my speed ranges? Like that PDF quoted 50 meg to 10 gig circuits. Is that the same now or? I believe the maximum right now is 40 gig. And the way that you achieve that is you actually run lag of oh, four, four, so four 10, 10 gig ports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you really, really like burning money, you can get <laughs> four 10 gig direct connect ports in the same data center. And because it's lag, they all have to be going into the same router. But you can get those four ports and get 40 gig of throughput dedicated to you into AWS. Does AWS charge me just for the circuit, or do they also charge me for the bits that traverse the circuit? Yes. They, they do charge you for both, I believe. You get charged for the circuit and then for some amount of data egress, I believe. But you, you still got the data gravity problem uh, effectively <laughs> yeah. then. Yeah. Yikes. You okay. absolutely do. Yeah. Wow. So AWS Direct Connect is um is a pricey way to go. Man, no wonder those guys are printing money. Right, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was Dale. We just talked about some bit per second, packet per second sort of related things. Uh, EC2 placement groups, elastic network adapters, AWS Direct Connect. Uh, let's talk about some things that are kind of related to size or sizing. Like Dale specifically asks us about instance sizing. Um, there's mm-hmm. one, one category of things I noticed here are load balancers, Ned. So we've got, I mean, that is an instance sizing, right? Load balancing is more about scaling out. But you know, right. instance sizing is kind of more, in my mind, scaling up. You know, getting the right size scale for your workload. Um, but so, so, but I decided to throw you know load balances in here. There are three kinds. Not the the details of which are subtle to me. You know, you've got the elastic load balancing, which has been around forever. You've got the application load balancer, which is more about HTTP, HTTPS traffic. Seems more, you know, layer seven magic you can do there. And then the network load balancer, which is you know somewhere in the middle. You've got the TCP traffic, where extreme performance is required, as AWS says mm-hmm. in the PDF. So. Starting there, Ned, ELB, application load balancer, network load balancer, you want to compare and contrast these three? Sure. ELB is the classic service. It comes from before there were VPCs when there was just EC2 and you needed a load balancer to put in front of them. And then they sort of ported that into VPCs. And so it absolutely works with those. And it works sort of between layer seven and layer four. So it has some features of both. But it doesn't necessarily do either of them especially well, which is why they developed the application load balancer and the network load balancer. So the application load balancer, you're absolutely right. That is a layer seven load balancer. That is what it's intended for. But it's more of a single tenant deployment, by which I mean it will scale up, but there is some lag in it scaling up. So if your traffic spikes really fast, your application load balancer might not be able to keep up with that. So that's something to bear in mind. But it does add a whole bunch of useful layer seven, layer seven processing logic that didn't exist in the ELB. So it allows you to serve multiple domains from a single IP address. It allows you to do uh, SNI with certificates. So you can have multiple certificates for a particular IP address, and then it'll look 
and see what's what server name are you asking for? Oh, I will give you the proper certificate for it. Well, I, so I, I was actually curious about that. If is the ALB as the you know my front door into my application server farm? Is that where my SSL terminates, or you know could be sort of a proxy? Typically, yes. You would terminate your SSL at the application load balancer, and then it's optional whether you want to re-encrypt coming out the back end. Yeah. Uh, a very solid, solid argument could be made that the traffic that flows out of the back end is within your VPC. So assuming no one's compromised your VPC and found a way to sniff traffic, you should be okay. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you really want to encrypt, you can just use the self-signed certificate because it's really not that big of a deal at that point. And away you go. The, but it, yeah, I mean, that feels very uh, like like I was an F5 physical load balancer uh, person back in the day. And uh, we, we had a bunch of applications that depending on what the regulatory requirements were, for example, we maybe did, maybe didn't encrypt on the, re-encrypt on the back end, but we'd do SSL termination sure. on the F5 and then you know, make up mm-hmm. our minds on the back end. And this feels, this application load balancer from AWS feels um, uh, the way they've designed it um, very similar. There was a time when compute resources were so precious and the capability of doing decryption and encryption had to happen on the CPU and not on the NIC, which is a lot, a lot of NICs do the offload now. So you were very concerned. I want to do the decryption at the load balancer, which has specialized you know, silicon to do that, and then leave it unencrypted when it's hitting my web instances because I don't want to burn their CPU cycles doing that dance. That is not nearly as much of a concern now. Right. The network load balancer is very different. It is a layer for load balancer. It okay, is a so, we, so we, we call classic elastic load balancer. That we went application load balancer. Now this is the third mm-hmm. one, the network load balancer. This is the third one. Okay, correct. Okay, yep. So the network load balancer is multi-tenant, and it you don't have to scale. It can basically handle whatever you throw at it. So you can throw as much traffic as you want, as and AWS just processes it and just chunks through it. What that means is it's good for, quote-unquote, extreme performance situations. That's what they mean by extreme performance is throw as much traffic at it as you want. We can process it. What it doesn't offer is anything above layer four. So it's not going to do the SSL decryption and re-encryption to the servers behind it, they are actually seeing the client IP. And when they respond, they're responding to that client IP. It's okay. it's still going back through the network load balancer through you know yeah. uh, some magic, but that network load balancer is not tra- it's not changing the packets in any way. So that's also important to know about the way that it handles the traffic. What one of the design patterns that you can do is have the network load balancer sit in front of application load balancers to do that initial triage and direction of things, and then have the application load balancers do your layer seven stuff and then have it hit your EC2 instances. So so it hits the network load balancer. The network load balancer would spray across a uh, several different application load balancers potentially? Mm-hmm. And yep. then from there, okay, so so in your application load balancer, you do your fancy uh, L7 stuff, uh, HTTP header rewrites, or, you know, what, whatever the, you know, SSL and so on, whatever the fancy HTTP stuff is you need. Then it goes back to, okay, that's, I don't want to have to troubleshoot that, but, but, I, but I get the application <laughs> architecture, yeah. Yes. Then that's one of those things, like, whenever you're designing, you have to design a level of complexity that you're comfortable with. Because you're going to be the one who has to administer this system and troubleshoot it when something goes wrong. So you might get the best performance by throwing the network load balancer in front and then passing it through an application load balancer. But yeah, you're going to have to troubleshoot all that. So just bear that in mind. Probably and of don't you use pay the cla- for it. Right. Probably don't use the classic load balancer. They're trying to deprecate that. So they really only want to support it for legacy environments and, you know, as you're building net new, they are really pushing you towards selecting one of the other two. Okay. All right. Good to know. Pushing on then, Ned. Um, Dale asked about offloads, and I discovered EC2 instance network capability where you can use SRIOV for some high-performance networking. Does this really factor into things very much? <laughs> I think for most people, it doesn't. Now we're getting in sort of the fringes of if I'm building a network virtualized appliance, and I want to use something like DPDK, 
to yeah. do packet processing at the NIC level. That's why I might want to use something like this. Okay. It felt very use case specific to me. So, so good. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And there's two flavors of it. There is an Intel driven one, which is specific to certain instance types that are definitely running on the hardware that has that Intel NIC. And then there's that enhanced networking adapter from Amazon that we talked about a little earlier. That one's the more common option now because that's basically what all the other hypervisors are running except for these ones that have the specific Intel chipset. I think the instance uh, types that have the Amazon networking are a little bit cheaper. And uh, you can, I don't know, there's more availability of that instance when you want to scale up or out. Okay. Might I want this if I am maybe not developing a network application or, you know, an, a you know, VNF, let's say, but I have one that I want to use. Might I mm-hmm. say, okay, so for this uh, instance, I just stood up, I want access to the Amazon hardware, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes when you get something from the marketplace, like go get like a Cisco virtual router or Palo Alto or whatever your favorite networking company is if you go get something from their marketplace they are going to have specific instances that they want you to run it on and that's because they want to take advantage of this enhanced networking so they will push you towards those instances to get the best performance out of the the virtualized appliance but uh, ned and i are on video right now i saw you smirk before you started saying that ned and i i interpreted that smirk to mean but if you're doing that you're probably doing cloud wrong is that was that a fair way to interpret your smirk? Uh, I mean, it's probably unfair, and that's a little bit elitist. So I, I don't want to. I don't want to sit. <laughs> but I'm not I, wrong. I tried that's exactly to, what you were thinking. <laughs> a little bit. I tried to gentle that a little bit because, in reality, if you are a network administrator and you have a fleet of Palo Alto firewalls in your environment, and AWS is another environment you have to deal with, I understand why you might want to just put a Palo Alto firewall up there and say, okay, now I'm consistent across my entire environment. So while it, it hurts me a little bit from the pure, like, purest architecture perspective, I also go, okay, I understand the reality of just needing to design that way. Yeah, yeah, but um, but ideally, what we would be saying is, alternatively, you wouldn't bring your legacy architecture into the cloud. You would attempt to redesign what you're doing and meet your goals in a cloud-native way. Ideally, yes. Uh, ideally, but but we don't live in an ideal world. So, okay. <laughs> no, not even close. <laughs> okay. All right. So so um, Dale also gave us the word etc which really opens the gates for what we want to talk about, Ned. So, oh, dear. Um, okay. So, so this is, this. I decided to bring up edge locations. This is a design thing. So, so give us an education about edge locations and how we need to think about those. I mean, there's a lot to unpack when you say edge locations because you could be talking about a CDN or content delivery network. So the idea there is I have people who want to access my information and they could be spread all across the world. And hosting all that information in a data center in U.S. East 1 is maybe not the best place for that data, especially if the people using it are in Japan. So why wouldn't I want to spread my mostly static information across all of these access points that are extremely close to the client? And that's what a content delivery network is intended to do. It's basically, I have a website. It has a certain amount of static content and maybe even some dynamic content. There's some cool things you can do there as well. Why not have that? Most of the world is using uh, a CDN in some way or not. You're probably a consumer of it. If you're a Netflix watcher, you're consuming a CDN, effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, Akamai is a big CDN. Uh, Cloudflare um, effectively acts as a CDN as that front ends uh, your website. There's a lot of that's going on. So we're talking about CDN kind of features like AWS CloudFront. We're also talking about DNS services, AWS Route 53, that can route you to specific edge locations, depending on a number of things, Ned. Yeah, absolutely. So Route 53 is their cloud DNS service, which is, you know, a nice nod to DNS because that uses port 53. 53. Yeah, I, I've explained that in a few meetings. And some people are like, oh, that's so funny. And other people just look at me blankly like, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, at least I find it clever. But it is their you know, global DNS web service, it ha- it's, has a 100% uptime SLA, which is, you know, you don't say okay. that lightly. 
<laughs> and it has a bunch of information about your AWS environment that it can understand dynamically. And then it can use that information to help route traffic for you. So if you do have an application that's running in multiple regions, you can have Route 53 load balance the traffic across those regions based off of where the client is coming from. And it can do that based off of latency-based routing, or you can look at the region it's in and do regional-based routing. It has a bunch of different potential options for it. Oh. And then, you know, if something happens to that region, if it goes down, then it can just reroute your traffic to a different region. And the way it's doing that is just by how it responds to that initial DNS request. So you are still at the whims of DNS and the TTL that's associated yes. with that record. Yeah, there's that. And we used to call this global server load balancing, right? There's been a lot of mm -hmm. DNS services that can do some flavor of this. And there's DNS services that today that specialize in this, like like NS1, for example. Um, mm -hmm. So this, this feels like Amazon's flavor of that with all of the uh, caveats and shortcomings that come with this style of load balancing since geographic identification and you know latency measurements are it kind of depends on where the dns query came in from which probably involved intermediaries and so on so i right. i know this works but it's certainly not perfect yeah it's certainly not perfect they do try to make it better and by having more edge locations they're basically able to see where the traffic's coming in sooner you can also and i can't remember the exact feature name but there's basically a feature with AWS where you can ha ask for the traffic to hit the AWS network sooner rather than later when it's going to access your application. It rides the AWS backbone as opposed to riding regular internet to the next location. It's the inverse of what um, Azure does Azure by does, default. Yeah. So Azure, yeah, it, they try to get you on their backbone as soon right, as right, possible. Right. AWS doesn't try to do that. And so you can actually pay an additional fee to get your traffic onto the backbone sooner. And the theory there is that their backbone is better managed than the internet, which in fairness, it probably is. So I, again, pointing out for the network engineers listening to this, you don't think of DNS necessarily when you're thinking about network performance. Maybe not the first thing that pops to your mind, but it actually can be a really important part of your application delivery stack. Uh, especially if you're delivering to a global audience. Th these sorts of features become absolutely critical. Right. And another thing to understand about Route 53 is it's not specific to just Amazon services. So one of the examples that they give, and I don't know how realistic it is, but it is one that they bring up is if you are hosting your application out of two of your own data centers, you can still use Route 53 and their latency-based routing to route traffic to the data center that's closest to the client, even though all of your stuff is not running in AWS. And I know they don't like to recognize that there are still workloads that run outside of AWS, but there are. And you could leverage Route 53 just for that global load balancing without actually using it, uh, using any other AWS services. Oh, well, that feels like a fun thing to explore. How does AWS Route 53 have a clue <laughs> if it's not routing to its own internal? How far the distance? Oh, that's we didn't have time today, Ned. But that feels like a health fun checks. thing to explore. It does health, health checks. checks. Oh, yeah. boy. Oh, boy. I didn't say it was great. I just said it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Any comments on AWS CloudFront, Ned? CloudFront, it's their, it's their CDN. That's what they want you to use. And... It's actually remarkably easy to set up and use. It's a couple clicks or a couple commands to get your CloudFront up and running. You select the regions that you want it to serve out of, and then you have to, you know, correctly configure your content to support caching properly. So a lot of the time, content on a website will have a caching value associated with it. How long should this information be cached before it has to be refreshed? That's something you do have to get into, but just getting your stuff on CloudFront is actually extremely easy. So that's usually a quick win if you aren't already doing it and you do have that global audience that's looking for static content. And again, it just costs money. <laughs> it's just money. Come on. <laughs> 
So a few other things to raise from the the PDF we referred to at the top of the show, Ned. Uh, AWS, quote, services commonly offer features to optimize network performance. And then there were several examples given. I picked out a few things here um, that uh, to, to follow up some of the things like this we've talked about already. But Amazon EBS optimized instances. So that's uh, EBS is Elastic Block Storage. Am I right? Yes. Okay. So there's... You know, two, oh, there's lots of different types of storage in AWS, but when you get down to the actual building blocks, you basically have local storage on the EC2 instance, which is a local disk inside that hypervisor, and that is ephemeral. If you kill that instance and start it up somewhere else, that data is gone. So be careful about that. <laughs> the other type of storage is EBS storage or elastic block storage, and that is just block storage that's available to you. You create a disk in EBS and you attach it to an EC2 instance and away you go. You have a you have a hard drive that's persistent. But, okay, the, persistent being the keyword there. I can drop an EC2 instance, stand up another one, and I can attach it to that EBS and the EBS will still be there and my data will still be there. Absolutely. Now, the thing to realize is because it's not directly attached physically to that hypervisor, has to access that information in some way. And how's it going to do that? Well, they don't run fiber channel. They, it's all network-based. Yeah. So in theory, the IO that you're using to move your storage bits back and forth is the same IO that you might be using to move your network bits back and forth. That could become a problem. So they created what are called EBS-optimized instances, which have dedicated throughput just for storage so your storage performance is not infringing on your network performance and vice versa. Otherwise, it would be sharing the network link, I guess. It's kind of a... Yes. Yeah. So, so you're, you're building out a, a dedicated channel for your storage traffic. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So, so if I was no... building this... Yeah. If I was building this in my you know, data center using something like I don't know, iSCSI, let's say... I would have dedicated iSCSI network adapters doing my storage and then other physical network adapters that were handling other portions of my traffic just so the two would never stomp on top of each other. This is the same sort of idea, but up in AWS. Got it. And and again, of course, I pay extra for this privilege. You do uh, barely, though. I mean, almost every instance, new instance, is already EBS optimized. So this is less of a hey, you got to select that super cool instance to get this feature. It's like, this is more the standard and you have to find an instance that doesn't have it and select that specifically. And maybe you do because you don't care about storage. You're barely using it. This is an instance that is just ephemeral by itself. I don't care about EBS optimization. Maybe I can save a couple pennies, but probably don't do that. Probably just, you know, spend the extra couple pennies just in case. Okay. All right, and then related to EBS optimizations, we've got another storage uh, transfer acceleration here, S3 transfer acceleration. Yeah, this is more if I need to get content into S3 a little bit faster. The idea here is kind of going back to getting onto AWS's backbone as quickly as possible. Instead of hitting the S3 endpoint that exists in the region, let's say US East 1. I'm using US East 1, that's where my S3 bucket is. If I use that endpoint to upload my data, I am going to ride the internet until I hit that regional endpoint. If I use transfer acceleration, now instead, I am hitting the closest CloudFront point to upload my data. And then CloudFront has some additional things it can do to accelerate the transfer of data through compression and some other technologies, you know, wizardry stuff that AWS doesn't necessarily tell you all about. But the idea here is if I am trying to pump data up to S3, it's going to happen faster if I use CloudFront as my front end to that upload. My brain said dedupe, and then it said, no, probably not, because then I'd have to run it through CloudFront forever. So probably not dedupe, but yeah. Yeah, and this is more, I have a ton of stuff that I want to upload. Yeah. Just and this is kind of a one-time deal. Up there. Yeah, okay. Yes. I, I follow you. I follow you. All right. Ned, anything else um, that you want to talk about re relating to Dale's tweet? Uh, we covered a lot of ground here, but anything else worth bringing up? Uh, one last thought on performance, and this is really important. Test your application. 
you can read all this architecture and AWS does make some claims, but there's a lot of stuff they're not telling you. And there's a lot of metrics they don't necessarily surface up in their marketing material, which is not shocking. <laughs> so when you actually are going to test out your application, you need to do some load testing on that application to see if the architecture you've selected actually performs the way that you think it's going to. You might be surprised. You just said something really important there. You said testing, and then you followed up a little later with load testing. It's not just yes. connectivity, raw performance for a few transactions. It's put this under load and see what happens. Yeah, a good example of that is they had this elastic file system, which was basically NFS, but it was supposed to be super scalable and really performant. But there was a lot of caveats about how you had to design the system. And there's an exhaustive write-up that somebody else outside of AWS did testing this thing. And they found that, no, no, it's actually much more effective to stand up your own NFS servers in EC2 and use those than use this Elastic file system because of the way it was designed at certain scales. So your mileage may vary. You really do need to test these services and make sure they make sense for your application and not for the theoretical application that was on the architecture guide you got. Okay, Ned, and with that lightning round, I got a few quick ones that came in, and let's see how we can do here. Question one from Matthew, is it true that you can span a subnet between availability zones inside a region? No, you can't do that. The, the, a subnet is bounded by its availability zone. That's just how the networking works in AWS, and there's no way around it. Could you build out an overlay network that has a subnet that spans AZs? Sure, but don't do that. <laughs> please don't do that. They're there, please, They're please there for a reason. <laughs> Second lightning round question from Nathaniel. Bastion host design. And why hasn't AWS turned Bastion host into a service offering already? Okay, so Bastion host design is probably a much longer answer that we don't have time to get into. The, the essential idea is I don't want all the stuff I have to access public-facing, so I will have one host or a pair of yeah. hosts that are public-facing that I can then go through those to the internal services that I want to talk to. It's a Why jump isn't box. AWS... It's a jump box. It's another name for it. Why hasn't AWS turned this into a service yet? They probably will at some point. Azure just did, did it for theirs, and it's still being battle-tested. I don't think AWS felt that there was an extreme need for it. Customers may not be demanding it, and they've got other things that they've turned their attention to, or they might just want to be like, let's let Microsoft figure that one out and then just copy it. It could be that they're stuck on a clever AWS product name, and I submit Cliff Diver. Ooh, I, I do like that, Cliff Diver. Yeah, like you're jumping right. off the bash. Okay, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, yeah, see what you did? See what I did? All right. Yeah. Uh, last lightning round question from Dan. IPv6 networking, does it work? How does it work? Anything different in the way AWS <laughs> handles IPv6? Okay, that's not a lightning round question either, but whatever. I threw it at you, Ned, just to see what you'd say. That's fine. You're right. Uh, if we wanted to dive into how it handles IPv6, we should, A, probably get Ed Horley back on the show, and B, that is a whole show in and of itself. But the short, short answer is yes, you can do IPv6 in AWS. Yes, you can bring your own range as well, or you can use AWS's provided range, so you can go either way. You start out with a slash 54, and then each subnet gets a slash 64. That's how it handles it, basically. The important thing to note about that is every IPv6 address in your environment has to have an IPv4 address as well. They're dual stacking the whole thing. The downside to that is there's a lot less IPv4 addresses than there are IPv6. So that's going to be your limitation. Got it. That's a lot of information we covered today, Ned. We're going to do another show on AWS networking a bit later. Maybe we'll take on some of these lightning round questions more deeply. And there's other things we didn't even get to today that uh, that you would tweet it at us. So if you have more questions about AWS networking you want us to cover, tweet at Day2Cloud Show. Ned and I both monitor that account on Twitter. 
we will get your question and uh, and hey maybe uh, your question will make it into the script and the thing that we talk about uh, don't forget about Ned's course on AWS networking if you didn't if you don't realize after this show that Ned got really deep into this subject and that that course is going to be valuable for you okay you you should get that at this point so if you <laughs> if you have a reason to get into AWS networking Ned's got even more for you uh, up at Pluralsight in that AWS advanced networking course Thank you for listening, and now stay tuned for our discussion with sponsor HashiCorp as we discuss Terraform Cloud. Welcome to Tech Bytes. This is a short sponsored conversation. Today, the conversation is with HashiCorp, and we're talking Terraform Cloud. You're like, oh, Terraform, infrastructure is code, right? I do something in Terraform, then magic happens in my infrastructure. Yeah, you, you got that part right. You're, you know, more or less, you're in the ballpark. And so then if you're thinking Terraform Cloud, so that means I can do cloudy things now with Terraform. Well, you always could do thing, cloudy things with Terraform. <laughs> so Terraform Cloud is actually something else. And if you want to find out what that is, listen to this conversation between Ned Bellavance and Rosemary Wang at HashiCorp. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We have our guest, Rosemary Wang from HashiCorp. She is a developer advocate. Welcome to the show, Rosemary. Thank you both. I appreciate you having me on. And since this is a Tech Bytes conversation, we're going to get right into the nitty gritty. You work with Terraform, and that is Infrastructure as Code. And for listeners who might not be super familiar with Infrastructure as Code, can you just kind of lay the groundwork for what you mean when we're talking about Infrastructure as Code? Sure. So infrastructure as code is applying the software development practices that we hear about and we see and we read about into working with infrastructure. So that could be using version control for infrastructure configuration. That could mean that you maybe do code reviews on your configuration because change review boards, they're not exactly code review, but they're pretty close, right? And it's applying maybe some of this continuous delivery concept, which is making really small changes and doing it as frequently as possible and then testing that and delivering to production. So it's a whole confluence of many practices and many patterns. Wow. And here I thought it was just now I have a, a template file instead of, you know, before where I was running some, some scripts or clicking through a portal. So you're saying infrastructure as code, it's not just the code itself. It's actually a, a set of practices that goes around that. Exactly. I think that it's a journey, right? So we're not going to go right off the bat and say all of a sudden a thousand commits a day, right? And we're going to completely <laughs> change our infrastructure. And the reality is I started in networking. It wasn't really something that was possible in networking. No one was going to tell me to make a bunch of changes to switches uh, and move away right. from that CLI typing in a Cisco switch to just being completely automated, right? You could just take down an entire network because of that. So. <laughs> As a result, there are a lot of other parts to infrastructure as code besides making changes through the code aspect and also the configuration aspect. Right. So you don't you don't jump right in and you're not doing all the things. You gotta you gotta ramp up a little bit. Exactly. And I imagine when you're ramping up, you would probably recommend using a tool like, I don't know, maybe Terraform to do that. So it, for the person who's just getting started, what would just getting started with Terraform look like? Terraform is really neat because when you're starting with infrastructure automation, you have to think about the logic of what happens, right? There's an order of operations for, let's say, when you create a server and then you configure it, and then after that, maybe you configure a database on top of that. So there's mm -hmm. an order of operations, and what's neat about Terraform is that a lot of people sat down and decided to think about these operations for you, and they wrote that into some neat automation. So Terraform is all about intent. It's not really a coding language. It's a declarative sort of syntax. So once you declare the intent of what you want in your infrastructure configuration, Terraform will give it to you and it will handle some of the dependencies associated with it. Okay, so I've got a process that I do today, some infrastructure that I deployed today in whatever format. I can port that over to Terraform and have Terraform provisioning that infrastructure for me. And let's say I get comfortable with that, and now I'm like, hey, my network team and my server team, I found this new tool. Let's all use it together. How does that sort of evolve? 
Well, it first starts that everybody hops onto a uh, like a repository of some kind that you've put somewhere into the magical ether. And then everybody says, hmm, this configuration doesn't look right. And so they'll start to make, let's say, pull requests. They'll start making changes. And then it gets to this confusing, lovely mess. <laughs> um, <laughs> it becomes a bit of a ball of spaghetti in terms of infrastructure configuration. So people start to reach this pain point where they've opened it up for people to look at, to pe for people to comment on, which is great because then you get more information from subject matter experts, like someone who's more adept at security than you are. But it just evolves sometimes to this big ball of mud. And sometimes you're no better off than when you had been manually clicking through consoles, clicking through uh, CLIs, working sort of asynchronously in a manual way. And so eventually you'll grow to this collaboration model where you have to find solutions to make it easier to collaborate. Okay. And I think there's probably multiple aspects to that collaboration. So you mentioned one, which is get it in source control. So yep. you know, I know personally, whenever I'm starting off a new project with Terraform or, or anything, first thing I do is create a repository on GitHub. It's like almost muscle memory now because Maybe somebody else is going to contribute to it. Maybe they won't, but I might as well just have it there. But, okay, so now I got that there. That's a portion of it, but then I imagine there's other collaboration components. I know that state management is a big thing, as well as who's actually running Terraform and where is it running from. So how are people solving that today with, uh, with the Terraform open source solution? Most of it has to be built themselves. I've built it myself, and it took three or four weeks to put in place. <laughs> Auditing is really hard for an open source tool that's by you know by nature not made to audit things, right? So it's made to maybe apply the changes, but internally Terraform open source doesn't really have audit tracking. So you have to build that yourself. You have to make sure that people have the right access controls when you add it to, let's say, version control, when you add it to a CI framework like Jenkins or CircleCI, all of that you have to figure out yourself. And then the other piece of this might be that, let's say you've got multiple states everywhere. Um, if you've run Terraform before and you've run it locally, you might have accidentally done an rm-rf to a lovely .terraform subdirectory that holds all that <laughs> metadata. And then that, I've done that. I actually did that earlier today. But you are like, oh no, I just deleted my state. And then now you have all of these resources hanging out there in your cloud provider, costing money and using resources that you don't need anymore. And right. so state sort of is, is a tricky thing when you're using open source Terraform. You need one place to manage it if you're managing across a team, mostly because if one person has it, and another person has a different one, how do you know what is actually the true state? What is the source of truth? Right, right. So I want to go back very briefly to the auditing and permissions aspect of it, because that sometimes I think is a little overlooked when you're adding people to a team. Maybe you don't want them to be able to create all of the resources. Maybe your networking team should be responsible for setting up virtual networks and switches and those types of things. Your server team, maybe they're just responsible for servers. Is that something you could do with the open source version of Terraform, or is that something that you'd have to, to pay for? So you won't be able to do that with Terraform open source, but you can actually do that with our SaaS product called Terraform Cloud. There are tiers that you have the ability to go in and add teams who can collaborate and have the access control to specific workspaces or specific components of infrastructure. Okay, so that yeah, that's one aspect that that I think of as a project begins to expand and more components get added to it. I, I want that level of restriction. And then I also want to know, like, if Jimmy John down the hallway checked in a piece of code and it broke everything, I want to know that Jimmy's the one who did it. Not to yell at him necessarily, but just like, okay, I, I need to address that issue with Jimmy and, and make sure that he understands what happened and why it happened. It sounds like that's another thing that you don't necessarily have that tracking capability within the open source version of Terraform. That's correct. I think that it is really some it's really difficult to set up. It's non-trivial to actually set up identity and access management and know that Bob accidentally did something, right? Uh, unless you actually have all of that in place. So, so to get started for smaller and sort of mid-sized teams, to get started is a really difficult concept to wrap their head around. 
And then when they talk to security teams or they talk to audit teams, and there's this requirement that comes up, whether it be by SOX compliance or something else, it becomes really difficult um, to dedicate, let's say, two or three weeks to organizing this tracking and this auditing. Right. And I have spent my time trying to just figure out identity and access management in AWS alone. And that is just a complete nightmare. I can't imagine if I was deploying something across multiple environments trying to manage the identity and access across those multiple environments. Um, no, no, thank you. I'm, I'm happy for someone else to do that. Uh, the other thing that we talked about uh, for a moment was state. And for listeners who aren't super familiar with Terraform, can you just explain what what's in that state file and why it's probably kind of important? State is really important for infrastructure because it's a bit like your source of truth. When in the sort of the data center concept, you would use a CMDB, a configuration management database, and you would have a concept of what inventory you had, which applications were running on which servers, which IP addresses they were maybe allocated to. And the result was that you had this source of truth. In now in this public cloud environment, it's really difficult to keep track of that in a traditionally managed CMDB. So the result is that when dynamically you're dynamically changing configuration that quickly, you need a way to keep it updated, make sure it's reconciled. So any other changes that are applied, you can actually understand the differences in the impact. So the powerful thing about managing state in one place is that if someone else wants to make changes to that infrastructure, they're able to see the effect of their changes and preemptively decide whether or not they should apply that change or if they should apply other mitigating factors to it. So if they said, I'm going to delete a database, they actually notice that they're going to delete a database. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Maybe don't do that, Jimmy. Maybe you don't delete my <laughs> database. <laughs> so uh, there's also uh, some important information that's stored in state that could potentially be sensitive. Um, so are there protections that are offered by Terraform Cloud to protect the sensitive data that's sitting in your state? Because I know that that can be a challenge when you're storing state locally or in some of the other supported backends for state management. So with Terraform Cloud, the idea is that you can store the sort of sensitive state in a way that you provide access control to who can see it, who can't see it. Hmm. For the most part, you don't really need to dig into state unless you know what you have to do with it. That's generally the advisory. Uh, you shouldn't go into your Terraform JSON and go make edits into that <laughs> JSON directly, although some people do. I think that we're getting to some more sophisticated features in encrypting the, the actual values in the state file. So mm. Terraform Cloud will encrypt the entire state file and then store it encrypted so and protected. You have to control who gets access to it. Um, but even within the values and sensitive state itself, uh, Terraform, we're actually looking at other ways to encrypt those variables specifically so we can actually target them. So it's sort of a two-pronged approach. With Terraform Cloud, you get that encrypted out of the box. Cool. So if I sign up for Terraform Cloud, I get state management, I get some access controls, I get some collaboration tools. If I want to start using Terraform Cloud, do I have to start shelling out some money? Is there like a free trial? So how, what's the onboard process for getting spun up on Terraform Cloud? What's great is that Terraform Cloud has a, fr a free tier. Uh, Ooh, and the free. free tier is really neat because you get state management so you can store state, but you can also remote execute. So hmm. it's really useful for me because I actually have to create demos or I have to create infrastructure really rapidly. And I don't have time to sit and create a CI runner in a you know in some other CI frameworks to install all those Terraform dependencies. So out of the box, hmm. what I get for free is I can just create a workspace upload some Terraform configuration, link it to maybe some version control in any version control you desire. Uh, and then I'll just apply changes and it will remote execute for it. I don't have to set up containers to run Terraform for me. I don't have to run it locally. So hmm. all of that comes out of the box uh, and you can pretty easily get started. But that does seem uh, fairly convenient. I now have something that I can go tinker with for the rest of yes. today. <laughs> If, uh, if people want to know more about Terraform Cloud, uh, where can they go to sign up or, or just learn some more information? 
So definitely check out app.terraform.io. There are a variety, there's a lot of information there, and there's also a sign up. The paid trial, if you go into the settings, is available for 30 days. And what that will do is allow you to try out policy as code, that's Sentinel. It will also allow you to try some of the access control features and the access control capabilities that we were chatting about earlier. And if you want to learn more about Terraform in general, go to learn.hashicorp.com. Cool. If people want to know more about you and where to find you, uh, where should they go? Where should they look? So you can find me on GitHub and Twitter uh, with the first letter of the following phrase, Jack of all trades, master of none. So J-O-A-T-M-O-N-0-8, because I'm quite literally a Jack of all trades, master of absolutely none of them, <laughs> uh, with zero 08 at the end. Uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, Rosemary, thank you so much for being a guest on this Tech Bytes version of Day 2 Cloud. Thank you for having me. Well, Ned, uh, we had a good show here on Day 2 Cloud talking about AWS networking and Terraform. And uh, to you listening, virtual high fives. You're awesome. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. Hit either of us up on Twitter. I'm at EC Banks. Ned is at Ned1313. Ned's got a form. If you'd rather go that way, nedinthecloud.com. Find the form, and we will talk about your topic next on Day 2 Cloud. If you'd like to support the Packet Pushers Podcast Network directly, because, of course, Day 2 Cloud is a part of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, you can become a member ignition.packetpushers.net. 99 bucks a year. The Ignition website gives you access to our growing library of white papers, courses, videos, long-form articles, and analysis that we do not publish anywhere else. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.